0: If you uh, haven't noticed by now, I am not Brett Kapranica. <clears throat> My name is Mark Kristiniak, <coughs> I'm one of the lay elders here at Summit Woods Church. And this morning we're going to be continuing in a series that we actually began back in April and it will continue through this summer on living in light of the different characteristics of God. If you will recall, back in April, Dalton Dantzel, one of our staff elders here, taught us on living in light of God's knowledge. And today, we want to examine what it means to live in light of God's love. And if you happen to be counting... In the passage that Brett just read for us, you would have noticed the word love is used 26 times in that passage. But the word love is also a word that gets thrown around a lot in our culture today. Love is a wonderful word. But it's one of those words that gets assigned a lot of different meanings. Some are valid. Others, not so much. A phrase that you may have heard used today in our cultures is, love is love. Have you ever heard that? Love is love? Did you ever stop to think what that means? Why would someone attempt to define a word by using the same word? Actually, I think that's the point. By saying love is love, you're really saying love means whatever I want it to mean. And not only that, but you must affirm my definition of love, or what? I might not love you, in fact, I might hate you. It's a very self-focused way of looking at love it often ends in hatred rather than love for those that oppose your definition. It's a very worldly way of looking at love, isn't it? And it's certainly contrary to what the Bible teaches about love. The Bible speaks of love as being more than just a subjective feeling, as we'll see in our passage this morning. Biblical love is the love of self-sacrificing service that leads us to consider others more important than ourselves. What did Jesus say about love in Matthew 22? I'll give you a hint. Nancy Harper was handing out bookmarks last week with this passage inscribed on it. Jesus said, love God. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Biblical love is other-centered. And those that love this way are following what he called the two greatest commandments that summarize all the others. We're called to love God and to love one another. The word love or loves or loved is used almost 600 times in the Bible. As we know, the Bible has a lot to say about love, doesn't it? John, as I said, used it 26 times in this passage, the one we'll be looking at this morning. Song of Solomon is the only other book that uses the word love more times. I think it's 34. So why the emphasis on love in this particular letter? Well, not unlike the church today, the first century church had a cultural problem also. And if you've been here at Summit Woods for a while, You've been with us as we've studied through various books of the New Testament and you've become familiar with the superstitious pagan culture in which the first century church was founded. And again, not unlike today, the church was having an impact or the culture was having an impact on the church in not so helpful ways. Just as today there were competing ideologies, false religions, and within the early church itself, there were a number of false teachers and their followers who were teaching worldly ideas and doctrines that were contrary to the teachings of the apostles and the entirety of the Bible. Their version of love is love took shape in the form of Gnosticism. And a slightly different twist Gnostics taught that. The physical matter, in other words, our bodies are inherently evil and it is only man's spirit that can be good. Therefore they claimed it didn't matter what you did with your body. As long as you had the right spiritual knowledge as they defined it, do whatever you want in the body. Sound familiar? Behave however you want to behave. Believe however you want to believe. The only truth that matters is my truth. And because they rejected the physical, they also were indifferent to moral values and ethical behavior. And ultimately, they ended up rejecting Christ's atoning sacrifice. They saw themselves as spiritually elite. And as a result, as one commentator put it, they were arrogant, unholy, and loveless. Remember, we're talking about professing Christians. Contrast that with what the Bible teaches about how Christians are to be characterized. We Christians are to be characterized by humility and holiness, and what else? By love. So in our passage, John is contrasting the false teachings of the Gnostics and their view of Christianity and love with the biblical view of Christianity and love. The biblical view of Christianity teaches us that we are to be humble. We're to abide in our love for God and fellow Christians, above all, abiding in God's love for us. So in this passage, John is exhorting His fellow Christians, both then and today, to demonstrate in practical ways their love for God and for one another. Why is that necessary? Because of the way that God demonstrates his love for us. We, in fact, love because he first loved us. So that's what we want to consider this morning. How Should we, as Christians, respond to the love that God demonstrates for us? There are four ways in this passage that detail how we're to respond to God's love, and the first is found in verses 7 to 8. Anyone who has been born of God, John tells us, will love his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, It's the mark of a Christian. God loved us, so we, in turn, love others. Verse 7, John says, beloved, let us love one another. And John's exhortation here really is the theme of this entire passage. We're to respond to God's love for us by loving others. Beloved, meaning loved ones, You that are loved by God, you are to respond to God's love for you by loving one another. That response is not based on our own subjective feelings, but rather on God, on who he is and what he's done for us, his beloved, those that he loves. It's not... I think you would agree with me, our normal response, apart from Christ, to love others more than ourselves, as we're called to do. Often is not, the opposite is true. We're prone to loving ourselves more than we love others. And in fact, in the culture we live in today, loving yourself is said to be a good thing. We should love ourselves. You need to learn to esteem yourself. You need to accept yourself as you are, no matter what. In other words, love yourself. Loving ourselves is natural. Loving others more than ourselves is supernatural. It takes the transforming work of our Savior. What changed when you became a Christian? Look at the second half of verse 7, you were born of God, born of the Spirit into a new relationship with God. For, John says in the second half of verse 7, love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is a language of John's gospel found in chapter 1 beginning in verse 12 when John writes, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of the blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're supernaturally born of God by his spirit, and we become his children. We come to know God as a child comes to know his or her father. We experience his love. Contrast that with John's description of verse 8 of the one who John says does not love. Why does he not love? Because he does not know God. Because as John says at the end of verse 8, God is love. At the time John was writing this, as we said previously, he was addressing the false teachers in the church, the Gnostic philosophers who even though they didn't know a lot, of, they did know a lot about God, they did not know God. They did not understand what God is love means practically speaking. As one commentator put it, the absence of God's love in their lives revealed their unregenerate condition, as it did their aberrant theology. As we said earlier, their lives were characterized by arrogance, unholiness, and lovelessness. They loved themselves, they loved their ideas, but not God or others. So what does John mean when he says God is love. The phrase God is love is not an ontological statement describing his essence or his nature. J.I. Packer says it's not the complete truth about God so far as the Bible is concerned. He says it's not an abstract definition that stands alone, but a summing up from the believer's standpoint of what the whole revelation set forth in Scripture tells us about the author. God's love is demonstrated throughout Scripture as we see his plan of redemption unfolding. But don't forget, this is the same God, the one who says, John says, God is love who also requires justice for unrighteousness. He is the same God that will one day judge the entire world. So, we can't, as some would say in the culture today, interpret the phrase, God is love, to mean that he will tolerate whatever they want him to tolerate. That because he is love, he will overlook their sin. Not that they would call it sin. In fact, I think the phrase love is love is just the world's new version of saying God is love. You may have heard non-Christians interpret the phrase God is love to mean he loves everyone and everything no matter what. Therefore, you have to affirm me and my behavior and that might likely be followed by a judge not lest you shall be judged comment. Anyone who thinks this way does not know the God of the Bible. It is idolatrous and demonstrates unbelief. It demonstrates an unregenerate heart, just as was the case of those false teachers in in the first century. God's love is demonstrated by action. How so? He causes us to be born of the Spirit and reveals himself to us through the knowledge of his word. And because of his regenerated action and our knowledge of him, we will increasingly love him and others, as we're called to do. We're to respond to God's gift of new birth and life in Christ by loving one another. That's the first way. This passage instructs us. Secondly, we're to respond to God's love by responding to Christ's atonement for our sin, again, by loving one another. And that's found in verses 9 to 11. We're to respond to Christ's atonement for our sin by loving one another. Let's recap. Here's what we've learned so far about God's love. Verse 7, love is from God. Verse 8, God is love. And here in verse 9, we'll examine how God revealed, how he demonstrated his love to mankind. Verse 9, by this, is the, but by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God's preeminent manifestation of his love is found in the act of him sending his son into the world. He demonstrated his sovereign mercy and grace, his love in doing so. John states in the previous chapter, chapter 3 in this epistle, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, And how does he say we're to respond? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The other verse that immediately comes to mind is a very familiar verse. In fact, it's so familiar that I think sometimes we're inclined to rush right through it, often often without considering the depth of it. John 3.16, everyone knows that. For God so loved the world that he what? He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life." What John is describing in his Gospel, in this epistle that we're looking at this morning, is a public demonstration of God's love. It's an act of His will. It's not just a benevolent feeling. This was the ultimate objective demonstration of what selfless love looks like in action. It's the kind that we're called to, albeit perhaps not on such a grand scale, but in smaller practical ways. There's a diagram on marriage that Dr. Garrett Higby uses in his discipleship counseling training. And if you've been around me much, you know the one I'm referring to? He uses a drawing that depicts what he calls a self-centered marriage. And alongside that, the Christ-centered marriage. The self-centered marriage is one where each person is saying to the other, I have needs, I have needs, and between them, there's a drawing of an explosion because that's what usually happens when we're more concerned about our own needs than we are about the needs of others, especially our spouse. The Christ-centered marriage, on the other hand, is one in which each person is asking, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? And between them is a drawing of a heart. It says love and serve. That's the type of practical response we're called to, because of what God did for us in Christ. That's how we're called to live. Not just now, but for eternity. On this earth, it's how we're called to live. This example, of course, could be re- be applied in many other relationships, whether it's at work in your families, in your neighborhoods, anyone that God has sovereignly put into your own life. Paul says this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Look next at verse 10 in our passage where we're told, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John reminds us that God's demonstration on love towards us had nothing to do with our inherent goodness. Prior to salvation, each one of us was an enemy to God and we were destined for eternal punishment, which presents something of a dilemma because God is holy and can't abide sin and every human from Adam on has sinned. But there was one solution, which was determined before the foundation of the world, and that is that God would redeem sinners by sending his Son in human form to live the perfect, sinless life, to atone for our sins. That's propitiation, the word John uses here. God's wrath against sin is satisfied. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Paul says we're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. If God were to pass over sins without punishment, people would rightly accuse him Of unrighteousness but on the cross his wrath against sin was satisfied and the debt of our sin was paid Christ was a propitiation for our sin God's wrath was turned to favor which is why John reiterates in verse 11 that we also ought to love one another We ought to show favor to those who sin against us just as God and Christ did for us, and that's not always easy to do, is it? Showing favor to those who've sinned against you is not based solely on our feelings. If it was, you know how that would end? We'd hold a grudge against the person or persons probably forever, or as the old saying goes i don't get mad i get what even. even it takes an act of our will a willingness that requires a decision a decision on our part to show favor to those who sinned against us forgiveness is not just a feeling it's in the same way that it took an act of god's will to send christ as a propitiation for our sins. So how might we go about doing that? How do we practically display God's love when someone has sinned against us? We display God's love by having an attitude of forgiveness, a desire to forgive those who sin against us. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says we're to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Genuine forgiveness and reconciliation, however, requires a transaction, transaction, just like the one that took place on the cross. The sinner must repent and ask the one who he sinned against for forgiveness. And if that happens, because of the love that God demonstrated toward us in Christ, We must be quick to forgive anyone that sins against us and ask us to forgive them, repent of their sin. But what happens when someone sins against us and they do not seek our forgiveness? Does that mean it's okay to hold their sin against them forever? As long as we feel like it? Do I feel like I'm ready to forgive? No. Holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It leads to anger, bitterness. It'll eat you from the inside out. Now, we're to have an attitude of forgiveness, a willingness to overlook the other person's sin as God in Christ chooses not to hold our sin against us, to overlook our sin. That's how we're called to respond because of what God did for us. God so loved us and forgave our sins, we also ought to demonstrate that same love he has for us to others. We're to respond to Christ's atonement for our sin by loving one another in practical ways. Next, the third way we are to respond to God's abiding love is to abide in him we're to respond to God's abiding love by abiding in him this is verses 12 to 16 he abides in us and we are to abide in him so the obvious question then is what does it mean to abide the term the verb form of abide or abides is used six times in this passage Webster's dic- dictionary defines the verb form this way it, it is to remain stable or in a fixed state, which in the case of God is ab- absolutely true. He is immutable, He's unchanging. Therefore, so is His abiding love toward us. It doesn't change. He can't love us any less, He can't love us any more. His love is fixed, it's unchanging, it's perfect. A good biblical illustration is found in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. But, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Branches grow from a stable, fixed vine. The branches that abide in the vine will bear fruit but not apart from the vine. Just like us, the branches are totally dependent on the vine. They must abide in the vine. If the branch does not abide, what happens? It dries up. It's removed. The commentator who pointed to this illustration went on to say, to abide is a verb. It's active. Abiding in Christ is not a feeling or a belief, but something we do. It means to remain or stay and entails far more than the idea of a belief in a savior. Please forgive my illustration, but an old song from the 70s by the band Boston came to mind when I read this commentary. The song is entitled It's More Than a Feeling. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. For the record, it's not even one of my favorite songs or bands. But the title captures the thought that it's not enough to feel or believe. You must remain or stay with Christ in all aspects of your life. You must abide in him actively. That's not likely what the band had in mind when they said that, but you get the idea. Abiding is more than a feeling. J.C. Ryle says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion, our best friend. To have his words abiding in us, he says, is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds. What evidence do you have that you abide in God, and he in you. Now use the word evidence, because what John is doing in this section, and really throughout this entire epistle, is presenting a series of evidences concerning our relationship with God and Christ. So I think what we need to do is examine each piece of evidence in this particular section. And listen, I'm not necessarily saying we're to doubt our salvation, because in fact, as John says in verse 13 of chapter 5 of this epistle, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. But we need to ask ourselves, am I growing in my knowledge and affection for Christ? Or am I withering, drying up, like the branches that are cast away. Am I abiding in him? Are his thoughts increasingly my thoughts? So as I was studying through this section, it occurred to me the best way for me to understand and explain this part of the passage was to ask and answer a series of questions pertaining to what it means to abide. What is the evidence that a Christian is abiding this is kind of my version of the five W's we learned back in journalism school, also back in the 70s. We were taught to ask and answer who, what, when, where, and why, and sometimes how, not necessarily in that order. So, hopefully, this exercise will help me explain this passage and help you to discern the nature of your relationship with Christ. So, we'll begin by looking at verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here's the first question. If you've not seen God, what evidence do you have that God abides in you? The answer, according to this passage, is you demonstrate it by your love for others. Let me explain further. No one, John says, has seen God the Father. And of course, Jesus, who visibly manifested the image of God, is no longer on this earth. So is it necessarily necessary that we actually see God? I mean, this is, after all, the show-me state, right? We live here in Missouri. We want to see. No, God is spirit. And the exception was the incarnation of Jesus when he bore the image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians 1. The Bible said God reveals himself in his creation, but that's a general revelation of God. It's for us to see, but it's not actually his being. As we've covered so far in this passage, though, God demonstrated his love in the most tangible of ways by sending his son that we might be born of God and live through him. It is not as verse 10 of course tells us because we love God but that he loved us and demonstrated he demonstrated his love through the greatest sacrificial act of all time Christ's atonement for our sin so what's the nature of that love that gives evidence to abiding in God one commentator put it this way john is interested in the obligate is not inter- excuse me john is interested in the obligation to love one another not for its own sake but because it's a sign that god abides in us did you catch that it's not just the obligation to love one another but rather the motivation by which we demonstrate god's love for us to others and as we'll see in verse 19 we love because God first loved us. And we're called to a selfless love, the kind of love that does not expect anything in return. It's sacrificial. Why? Because that's how God loves us. How do you know if that describes you? John says God's love is perfected in us. His nature increasingly becomes our nature. It's a process of growing in our affection for God and ultimately for others. Which leads to the second evidence that God abides in us, and that's found in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. So the question: How can you know that God abide, you abide in God, and He abides in you? Well, the short answer is what it says here: He's given us His Spirit. How do you know that? How do you know God has given you a spirit? What's the role of the life of the spirit in a believer? We don't have time for a long discourse on pneumatology, which is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's briefly examine what the Bible says is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, particularly as it pertains to this passage. God's Holy Spirit is a gift. We're told that here. It's, and it's a crucial part of our salvation. God has given us His Spirit. It's a gift. And His Spirit unites us with Christ, which is a, a concept that permeates the New Testament the union between Christ and His followers. We hear the term in Christ that use, is used to describe someone who has a relationship with Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Likewise, we're told Christ is said to be in his people. This is what Paul presents in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God in verse 13 of our passage the emphasis is on that mutual indwelling or abiding with God or Christ by his spirit And in the context of this passage, a fruit or result of God's Spirit in us produces love, as has already repeatedly been said this morning. And as it's, Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, along with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits... Love, being listed first, will come to increasingly characterize the life of a believer. So you should ask yourself Is there increasing evidence of that in my own life? If so, it's a demonstration that you are abiding in Him and He in you. It brings us to our third evidence of God abiding in us and we in Him. This is found in verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What men provide this evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world? We have seen, John says, who has seen? The apostles. John and his fellow apostles. Those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. So here's a follow-up question. How do you know their evidence is reliable? Listen to John's own explanation in chapter 1 of 1 John. You can flip back there if you'd like. Beginning in verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's referring, of course, to Jesus. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was manifested in us. Or listen to Peter's account from 2 Peter in, verse, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, another eyewitness. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He is, of course, describing the transfiguration that uh, took place, and it's described in chapter 17 of Matthew's gospel. You probably heard it said regarding God's plan of redemption, but I'll say it again. You couldn't make it up. You could not make this plan of redemption up. No human would devise these tales, as Peter calls them. The Bible was written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. It's not a cleverly devised tale. The pieces from Genesis to Revelation fit together like a glove. It's God's revelation of himself and his plan of redemption. And John, Peter, the other apostles were eyewitnesses to the culmination of that plan. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Back to verse 14. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, which means to atone for the sins we could never atone for ourselves. a propitiation, verse 10, as we already said. God's wrath against us is satisfied. That's the gospel. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. And it's available to anyone who confesses, John says. Confess what? Verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he goes on to say, and for those that do, God abides in him and he in God. Fifth and finally, verse 16 We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So how do you genuinely know if you believe the gospel and abide in the love that God demonstrated for you? How do you know? The answer That was the question. Here's the answer. God is love, and you come to know and believe that based on the love that he demonstrated to you in Christ. This is not just a feeling. This is a absolute grasp of the love that God has demonstrated to you in Christ. Again, John reminds us that God is love, and I reiterate, not in the ontological sense but in the sense that he demonstrated his love by sending his son to be the savior of the world. This seems to be the stumbling block for most people. Why would I say that? Well, because seemingly the majority of people don't recognize just how sinful they actually are, especially in the culture we live in. We have it pretty good. Why do I need God? Why do I need a savior? Death and standing before God in judgment seems a long way off if we ever even think about it all. Why do I need a Savior? For those of you who are here today that are Christians, each of us at different times and different ways came to the end of ourselves. We were out of answers. The weight of sin which takes on so many different forms, was crushing us. We had no more answers. And as Dr. Jim Berg says in his study, Taking Time to Quiet Your Soul, we were miserable. And we needed to be rescued from our miserable condition. And God is looking for people to rescue. How were we miserable? We were angry. We were anxious. We were frustrated. We were depressed. Our lives may have been a trail of broken relationships, failures. The list goes on, and it's slightly different for each of us, isn't it? In that wonderful section in Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then continuing in verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is how we come to know and believe. He transforms us. He gives us a new heart, a new life, new desires. We're able to understand the love which God has in us. It's an abiding love, a love that remains enabling us to abide in him. We're to respond to God's abiding love by abiding in him. And it's only because of his love for us that we're able to do so. Which leads right into our fourth and final point. Not the final one of the sermon. There's one more of those. We can respond with confidence oh excuse this is the I got off track there guess what fourth and final point (laughs) the fourth and final point of our sermon finally we can respond with confidence because of God's perfect love this is verses 17 to 21 I can't imagine that there is a single person that has ever lived that did not, to one degree or another, fear death. And why wouldn't we? Apart from what the Bible tells us, it's a mystery. But if the Bible is true, and I believe that with every fiber of my being that it is, based on what God has revealed in it, We, every single person, one day will die and stand before him. And every person, Christian and non-Christian, will face judgment. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, what do you imagine that will look like? How do you think you'll respond? May I tell you that apart from Christ... You will have no response when you stand before the all powerful, all powerful creator of the universe, the one who created you. When you stand before a holy God, you will for the first time understand that you are not the good person you may have imagined yourself to be. You'll be judged. For every single sin you committed, not just your actions, but your sinful thoughts. Because God knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about you, and you will be found guilty and sentenced to face his eternal wrath. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. If that sounds harsh, it's because it is. It's much more so than we can even imagine. How then can John say, you may have confidence in the day of judgment? It's because of what he's been telling us in this passage. Our confidence is because of the love God demonstrated to us through Christ. When Christians stand before God, every sin is covered by the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which because of God's love for us, he gave freely to those who believe. We will not be found guilty, not because we're sinless, but because of the abiding relationship we have with the Father through the Son that's based on his love, not our feelings and emotions. By this, John says in verse 17, love is perfected in us, meaning the love that God has demonstrated to us through Christ by our understanding and trust in the fullness of the promise of the gospel. We will abide in him now and forever. So that, John says, we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. In this world, we're like Jesus in the sense that we have an abiding relationship with God, just as he did, and we demonstrate it by loving God and others. It's not perfect as his was. He had a perfect, perfect abiding relationship with the Father. That's not the standard for us. God asked for us to believe him to trust in him, to abide in him, to remain with him. Once again, as J.C. Ryle said, to have his words abiding in us, to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds. And John goes on to say in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love and remember verse 19 why do we love we love because he first loved us we're not dependent upon our own comparatively meek feelings of love towards God but on his omnipotent immutable eternal love that he demonstrates towards us One final piece of evidence to examine, to consider about our relationship with the Lord, beginning in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's a clear statement. If you harbor hatred towards others, it's not repented of. John says that may contradict any evidence that there is that you love God. If you're characterized by hatred, by intolerance for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Listen, we're not all going to be best friends. We understand that. But we have a common bond. We have Christ. And in Christ, we learn to love one another, to overlook each other's faults. This is what we're called to do. It's not always easy. But in Christ, we can. So again... Examine your own hearts. What's my disposition towards those whose God has put in my life, our fellow members here at Summit Woods, other Christians that we know outside of our church? And whether you're a Christian or not, I really hope you will consider the truths of this passage. If you're a Christian, you want to consider because you I want to encourage you to grow in Christ, to abide in Christ, to remain in Him. If you're not a Christian, I want you to think hard about what it is that God is offering to you. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And when the weight of the world is bearing, is crushing you, you can turn to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 28 Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're a Christian, I pray your affections for Christ and others are growing. If you're someone who perhaps at some point in your life made a profession of faith in Christ, but you know in your heart that your affections for him and for others is missing? I urge you to think deeply about your need for his love, not just for now, but for eternity. It's in his love and his love alone that we will find peace. Let's pray together. Father, may the truths of this passage become ever more real to each of us each and every day you give us on this earth. May we learn to increasingly understand what it means to abide in your never-changing love. Help us, Lord, to demonstrate that love to each other in tangible ways, serving one another Following the example of our Lord, who, as Mark's gospel said, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Direct our hearts to trust in your steadfast love and the truth of your word. May we rejoice in the promise that we need not fear because perfect love casts out fear. All these things from you who reconciled us to yourself through Christ and for that and each and every grace we experience now and forever we give thanks in his name let's sing together